Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Sonny Dillon, for the introduction to today's guest, Deb Benton. Deb is the founder and general partner of Willow Growth Partners. Willow Growth provides early growth capital to entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative consumer brands and the disruptive technologies that power them. Prior to launching her fund, Deb held many senior operational positions in companies like Nasty Gal, Shoe Dazzle, and eToys. We discussed what investors don't get about investing in consumer brands, lessons learned working for established and aspiring brands, and her approach to trends. Without further ado, here's Deb. So Deb, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I have been thinking about doing this podcast ever since we met, and I've gone back and listened to a bunch of ones that you've done, and they're terrific. Congratulations for you on creating this platform. It's it's awesome. Well, Deb, thanks so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it, and I've been super stoked for this conversation. It's really excited to talk about what you have going on with Willow Grove. But I love to just start about like the very beginning of your career. What was your initial attraction to work in retail and consumer products? Oh, gosh, you know, it's funny, the older you get, you get asked this question a lot. And I wish that I was so brilliant and had such great strategy and, you know, forethought and foresight that, you know, I planned it out right coming out of business school. That's a joke. I I absolutely I fell into it. I came out of business school and did the requisite few years in management consulting, which was a great training ground and ended up following one of my clients to eToys, which you're way too young to remember. And I'm dating myself here, but eToys was an extraordinary company founded in the mid mid nineties, I think 96, somewhere around there. It was, you know, one of the very first generation of e-commerce and uh, digital retailer. And my client became the CFO and he was basically brought on to take the company public. And so, you know, I really wanted to get out of consulting and I, I, I loved uh, eToys and what they were doing. And I was super excited about, you know, the promise of e-commerce and being able to transact online. And it was toys. It was so much fun. So I kind of fell into it, but I'd say 
since then, what I was really attracted to and still am very attracted to is the effect that brands and consumer products have on people's lives and the relationship that you can build with the customer, in particular in a digital setting where you have, you really disintermediate, you know, a lot of the, well, frankly, the brick and mortar and the management structure, you know, customers can really interact directly with the brand. And so the relationship that you can build, I've always found very compelling, but I see, I think just brands and products have a profound impact on all of our lives. And I think that they can bring joy and convenience and happiness and, you know, it gives us the ability to express ourselves and to celebrate ourselves. I completely agree. I mean, I love how you say that in terms of the impact that consumer brands have on people's lives and that attraction. I think that probably resonates with a lot of folks in terms of their attraction to wanting to head in this world. You know, what I really appreciate about your career, and especially in our first conversation, you know, you've witnessed companies that, you know, raised a lot of money like eToys. I know you also were the COO of a shoe dazzle, two companies that raised a lot of money and had a lot of momentum, but then were not be able to become profitable and sustainable. So I would just love to know what were some of your learnings through those experiences? Yeah. So if you look at the history of e-commerce, and I, I say that, you know, with the, the insinuation that it's, you know, a hundred years old, it's not, right? Like it's, it's really not. It's kind of the mid nineties to now. So we're talking about 25 years. Like it's, it's really, really a short period of time. When you look at eToys, which I was there in 90, say 98, 99, 2000s, somewhere in that time period versus Shoe Dazzle, I joined, well, it was a decade later. Those two periods of time were very different from one another. Very, very, very different. So, and even the models were different. eToys was basically bringing the retail experience online. So it was essentially a, a, you know, I would say a Toys R Us, many, many different brands. We didn't produce anything. It was, there was no vertical integration in terms of our supply chain or production. Uh, we were selling other people's products. Shoe Dazzle, vertically integrated, soft subscription model. You know, even in that, that 10 years, it was an extraordinary amount of change that happened. In the eToys days, you know, and I have a whole kind of thesis around the source of capital, the type of capital that are best for these businesses and the accompanying investment thesis or returns profile that a lot of these investors are looking for. In the eToys days, you know, that was very, very early. Venture capital, of course, was the, the only source of capital at the really early stage that could go and fund these types of companies. And they were expecting, you know, that to be the, the next Toys R Us, essentially, you know, in the, in, in the digital world. It, it was very early days. Nobody was talking about unit economics. Nobody really understood the margin profiles. If you look at it, you know, what the, what the anticipated income statement was going to be in the eToys days. It was just all too new. We really didn't understand it. We didn't understand about acquisition and lifecycle management and retention and the importance of managing your funnel or repeat buying. Fast forward 10 years to Shootazzle, Brian Lee, who I'm sure you know, an unbelievable founder, very insightful, super, super, super smart at looking at and finding kind of these emerging opportunities. He brought an updated model of subscription and capitalized on the very, very early days of social media and celebrity with Kim Kardashian, who was one of our co-founders and who was probably one of the very original kind of mega digital influencers. He brought that all together. And again, even back then to get funded, really VC, true venture capital was really the only source that was 
that's available. And you know what tech VCs want these companies to do, which I completely understand, is grow very, very, very fast, grow your top line, get market share, and they're looking for you know a billion dollar exit. That's how they make their portfolio construction model work. I think over time, and and we've certainly learned a lot more even now and every year it changes because things are evolving so rapidly. You know, I found personally that that brands just don't grow and scale usually in the way that tech companies do. It takes a little bit more time. You know, we talked about the relationship that you have to build with, with your consumer. You really focus on the repeat purchasing. You know, you're really looking at lifetime value. Margin is, is super, super, super important. Operational discipline, very important. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of these fantastic brands and, and Shoebassel did eventually sell to Textile and is still operating and, and I think doing very well. But we still see, I still see too much of this focus on top line growth for consumers consumer brands with the anticipation that, oh, if we just grow that top line fast enough and strong enough that everything else will come into line. It will take care of itself and, and eventually we'll, we'll, we'll get to profitability and, or they don't even talk about profitability, which I think is a huge mistake. So I think over that, that period of time, and certainly even my operating experience after that, and certainly the last seven years of my investment experience with a lot of the evolution of how these brands are performing and, and particularly what we're seeing in the M&A market, I think the thinking has evolved and certainly my thinking as an investor evolved, which was really formed the thesis for us for Willow. No, I appreciate that. Thanks for taking us down memory lane in terms of knowing and understanding some of the differences too with the model of e-toys not being vertically integrated, you know, almost seeming like the perfect software company, right? It's still, it's still inventory holding, right? Like the fact that these businesses are inventory holding creates a completely different requirement for working capital and how you think about cash flow management. Like it's a very, very different model than scaling a software business. Right, right. I understand in terms of the model and the only way to maybe finance these companies were to seek venture capital investment and venture capitalists are seeking that billion dollar outcome at a minimum. And so how, in terms of learnings from maybe when we had Shoe Dazzle, which started out, is that 2008? Is that right? Around 2008, what were some of the learnings from that and maybe how e-commerce has evolved until now and helped shape you? Because I know that you then started angel investing after that experience. Yeah, well, I left Shoe Dazzle and was the president at Nasty Gal and also raised a fair bit of capital there to scale the business and went through, you know, really quick growth. The founder had built this really beautiful, unique brand. And then we raised a bunch of capital to go in and, and really scale it. And after that, I subsequently went into investing. So lessons learned, you cannot overstate the importance of a healthy margin profile. And the margins that I look at, uh, you start with product margin, your blend product margin. Then you move into your gross margin. And for me, gross margin includes your net shipping costs, your merchant discount fee, and your packaging costs. After that, you've got contribution margin one, which is your fulfillment and CS variable costs. And then contribution margin two, which is all of that plus your acquisition costs. So that you really get to, after contribution margin two, you get to all of your dollars that are left over to offset the fixed costs of the business. And so once you know what that is, particularly on an order basis, then you can really start to plan and scale and manage your fixed costs so that you, you, know, you can see when you start to get operating leverage because you do need a certain amount of scale that that will eventually drive to profitability. That's how I think about these businesses. That was a conversation and certainly metrics that we never talked about in those days. And believe me, Shoe Dazzle was founded and run 
and financed by incredibly smart people, you know, really, really, really very smart people. This was, I think, an evolution that we all had to go through to really see just structurally how different these businesses are from software businesses and what the key metrics are and how they are different also from, say, an enterprise business. So I'd say, you know, kind of a maniacal focus on your margin profile and trying to understand how that scales and constantly sourcing and resourcing and trying trying to get margin back from, you know, as you, as you start to scale, you should be able to bring your small package freight outbound costs down. You should be able to get some leverage to bring your product costs down. Like there's a whole bunch of different ways, but you're always, you know, every month you've got to always be looking at it. The second thing, a really big learning to come out of this for me was you cannot only buy high integrity growth. I think paid acquisition is great. There's a, there's a role for paid media. There's no question, but you have to look, particularly in today's environment, you have to look look for other ways other than just paying. And that can be through influencer. It can be through communities. It can be through partnerships. It can be through, you know, kind of brand building. There's lots of different ways. You got to kind of find your own flywheel. But if you just buy your growth, you're going to be in trouble because it tends to be lower integrity. And then I I would say really figuring out what your mix is, paid to non-paid margin profile, and then life cycle management. You know, you really want to understand how your consumer is interacting with your brand and how you can be of service to her or him over a period of time and not just a single transaction. This is really about building a relationship. As you well know, it's much easier to sell an existing happy customer something rather than going and acquiring a new customer. And so figuring out how to really build a high integrity relationship and leverage that relationship. I think those are all really good points. I mean, what I really appreciate too is that paid to non-paid ratio when it comes to growth, especially nowadays when paid growth is really, really expensive online due to Google and Facebook. When you see brands maybe come to you for investment, when I had on David Wu from Maveron, he was saying how 40% of VC dollars go directly to Facebook and Google. When you see entrepreneurs come to you that are building brands and think about, you know, unique strategies for growth, what were maybe some of the most unique strategies that you heard or maybe like their approach in terms of growing and scaling? Yeah, I'd say there's a few different things. Look, I'm an equal opportunist. I think this there's no silver bullet and I think this can be done in many different ways, right? So I I'm far from somebody that's going to sit here and say, oh, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. No, it's not. I've seen celebrities used well. I've seen them used really poorly and it was a complete failure. There's a few things that I think for me going forward and and some of our investments in the past reflect this that I think can be really differentiating and and put you kind of in, in a good position to scale going forward. You know, in the past, I've seen some really powerful brands emerge where the brand itself was really what you were buying. The products were fine and they were good enough, but it was really the brand that you were buying into. And I'm a brand investor, so believe me, I'm I'm very pro-brand. What really excites me today, I would say, are products that are uniquely different and have superior design and functionality. So when you're starting with that, you really have so much more to talk about. You're not simply trying to 
create a super cool brand and sell more of the same to the customer. You're starting with something that is just, you know, kind of very objectively superior. And I'll give you an example. And of course I'm here and I'm going to boost all of my portfolio companies. Coterie is a fantastic brand in the baby personal care space. And Frank, who is the founder, spent two or three years and a whole bunch of his own capital actually researching and redesigning and looking into material science to create a much better diaper. And he succeeded. The materials he's using are, you know, at the highest echelon of better for you, non-toxic. His ingredients are clean. He had built everything with as strong an eye as, as possible towards sustainability. And objectively, you do absorption tests and the coterie diaper is twice as absorbent, significantly softer and more comfortable, less diaper rash, better sleep for the parents parents better sleep for the baby. That's a great place to start when you're trying to build a brand. Now, beyond that, he's built a community, which I would say community for me when I'm looking to invest and looking at brands is very important. I think the day of, you know, hiring a really expensive celebrity and putting his or her face on a glossy magazine and trying to sell something, it's not that exciting to me anymore. What's very exciting to me are these very powerful, sometimes smallish communities of true advocates, uh, true evangelists for the brand that are just organically speaking about it and talking about it and will tell their friends and will tell their colleagues and will tell their neighbors. That to me is very powerful. So I don't mind how small, I have to believe obviously that, that the, the brand can be big enough and the outcome can be big enough. But if I see kind of these communities, even small communities talking fanatically about the product or the brand, that's very exciting to me. I love that. I really appreciate that. What I also really love about your experience as well is that you've worked for on the ground floor of Nasty Gal and also She Dazzle. But you've also worked as well at The Wonderful Company, which is more established. And when I think about brand, I mean, The Wonderful Company certainly comes always top to mind for me. I love to learn since those all seem quite different experiences. I love to learn where Wonderful Company seems more in like the corporate realm, so to speak, if that's fair to say. What were some of your learnings from those experiences? You've kind of seen brand in two very different spheres. Yeah, I would say it's easier for me to tell you what they all had in common. You know, I was at Teleflora at the Wonderful Company. And again, flowers are deeply emotional. So if I look back, and again, hindsight's much easier, you know, and I was not that smart when I was looking forward, trust me, but looking back, you know, toys, fashion, personal care, beauty, flowers, these are incredibly intimate and deeply connecting experiences that the consumer has, whether they're giving it as a gift or they're receiving it or they're buying it for themselves. So even though the structure with some of these companies was very different, and I've worked with companies that are two people all the way up to, well, gosh, eToys in its heyday had hundreds of people and certainly the wonderful company amongst all of its portfolio, hundreds and hundreds of people. But all of them had what they all had in common was with the products that they were selling or the experiences they were selling, they really were building a relationship and they were giving the experience. It was just an emotional experience. That I think is probably what led me there. Obviously, a lot of these companies, very different stages. And I was at Teleflora, very mature company. And corporate, no, keep in mind, a wonderful company is private. It's Stuart and Linda Resnick, both brilliant entrepreneurs unto themselves. And Linda is, you know, just extraordinary at marketing. So even though they were much larger, and certainly more mature companies, 
they were still privately held, privately run, um, and in their own ways, really pretty innovative and not corporate at all. But I will say the, the experience at Teleflora was remarkable because Stuart gave me the opportunity when I, <laughs> given my experience, I had no business being given this opportunity, but I'll forever be appreciative of it. And he gave me a $100 million P&L to essentially run. And that was just amazing because I was able to see for a mature company kind of on the other side of these super early stage startups, where we want to get to and how important, you know, margin profile was, uh, you know, we, that company was not growing 30, 40, 50, hundred percent year over year, but it was incredibly profitable. And so it was great to see the other side of the coin that, oh, this is where we're starting, you know, it's chaos and there's no structure. And we have this, you know, extraordinary founder with a great vision, but really no business versus over here, very mature company. Things are really buttoned up processes, infrastructure, margins are in place. How do we continue to grow that business or harvest that business? And then what's the path in between? When you're advising some of these early young companies, some of the conversations we've had on the show is when it comes to hiring and maybe because it seems like what I find so impressive about you is you were able to manage the $100 million P&L for a large company and also, you know, been there and been part of the scrappiness that you need to be for a smaller company. And when it comes to hiring, investors have told me on this show and also founders is that sometimes you can't rely on someone who, you know, has maybe come from like the big name background there because they might not know really what's happening is they might have to have budgets in order to really function and move the needle. I was just curious, how do you think about hiring when you have a founder, you know, looking for a position or maybe advice for founders in their approach to hiring? Yeah, I think hiring and team building and the right organizational structure is probably the number one most important thing that I focus on as an investor in the early days and work with the founder on. I think it sets the infrastructure for successful or not successful growth. I can't say strongly enough how important building the right team, right not only the bringing the right people in, but bringing the right people in the right roles within the right structure. So I would say it's something that at Willow, we spend a lot of time on. We work very collaboratively with the founder. At the end of the day, you know, we are backing this founder. We want to do what's right for the founder, but we'll certainly share our experiences and, you know, give counsel. Generally, it starts with the founder. What are the skill sets? Where is the real value? Where does the founder get joy in spending his or her time? Because that's where he or she will add the most value. And then we build around that. I've done this now with probably 25 companies. And so I know it. I know a general structure. Now there can be differences. Uh, you know, there's no one cookie cutter, but generally we know the structure, the org structure that certain companies need at, at certain stages. And it's really a conversation with the founder building around their skill set there, the value that they want to bring and generally how they want to spend their time. That's super helpful, super helpful. And I know we've talked now a lot about your career as an operator, your incredible career as an operator. And I'd love to also shift the conversation as well about you as an investor. What was the attraction to becoming an angel investor? And why then after becoming an angel investor for a few years, you decide to launch your own VC fund? I get that question an awful lot. <laughs> I hope I give them the right answer on that. So I left operating, I guess I had been operating in the early stage long enough to know 
that it wasn't always being done right. And when I say that, everybody's doing it with the best intention, of course, but I saw just how different these digital consumer brands were from these software companies and where the focus should be. And it starts with the right capital structure. It starts with disciplined valuations, disciplined capital raising, staying very lean on the operating side, and really from the early days talking about a path to profitability. I believed that that was the right path forward. I wasn't seeing it. I had seen a lot of blow-ups. I'd seen a lot of beautiful brands that should be around today and they're not, certainly not in the, the form that they should be. And I guess I wanted to have some influence on that. I wanted to support founders and I made every mistake in the book, every single mistake in the book. And the value I could provide was, yes, a little bit of capital, but more on learn from my mistakes. This is what I did wrong. Think about doing it this way. That was very compelling to me, for sure. I really liked the categories that I supported. I've never invested specifically through a gender lens, but in consumer, you tend to get a lot of female founders. I'm obviously very passionate about backing women founders. So in 2014, I made the decision to leave operating. And I was talking to both PE funds as well as VC funds. And frankly, no one was thinking about it. This was way too early. I wanted to stay at the seed stage. It was way too early for private equity. But I knew that private equity was probably going to be the next or the next after that investor, financial sponsor in the company. That was the right route to go. And VC was really still just too tech oriented that for me to join an existing fund, it, it didn't really make sense. So I really had no choice but just to kind of do it on my own. And it was, you know, back then it was a very unorthodox approach and still unorthodox approach to how I was assessing and thinking about wanting to value capitalize and scale these brands. But that was, it was exciting to me. And I, I did it for six years and it gave me the opportunity with my own dollars at risk to prove out a thesis that I'm convinced more than ever is the right way to think about these brands. No, that's awesome. And so what then compelled you to start Willow Growth from that? Yeah, I had been thinking about it for quite some time. I am even more passionate about getting diversity into capital allocation and invest making investment decisions. And that's not just women, that, that's true diversity. So it's certainly people of color, it's definitely women, but it's also getting people from different backgrounds that don't all emerge from the same five schools that typically VCs emerge from that have different experiences. If you think about how capital has been allocated and how investment decisions have been made, it's a pretty homogenous group over the last 30 years that have been making those decisions. And if you believe that capital is power, as I do, power to, you know, to determine who's going to get funding, who's going to build the next businesses, who's going to run the next businesses. It's a pretty narrow lens that we've been looking through and it's certainly not representative of all of us. That infuriates me. So I think um, moving from an angel investor to actually institutionalizing gave me the opportunity. You know, I had a track record. I had a very specific thesis that was very different. I wanted to do it, but I also felt in some ways a responsibility to do it. We need more women stepping up that have the opportunity to do it not just women, people from diverse backgrounds and not everybody is there. It's very expensive to do it. You know, I mean, you probably, I'm sure you understand the economics of a fund. I spent two years 
thinking about this planning, structuring, getting it together. You know, there's not a lot of people that have that luxury of that flexibility to be able to do that. And so even just getting into this, getting into this area and starting your own fund, it's prohibitive for the vast majority of people to do that. Totally agree. And thanks so much for walking us through that. You know, it reminds me a little bit too of my conversation, one of my first conversations actually on this podcast with Nicole Quinn at Lightspeed, that she started also as an angel investor. And she said she wanted just to have a lot more impact and change. And so that's what led her to become venture capital and kind of control more of the dollars where it actually leads to. And completely agree with you in terms of diversity, especially in consumer. And so at Willow Growth, let's learn more about Willow Growth specifically. And I've had some investors that focus on consumer but they aren't thesis oriented and some that are heavily thesis oriented and consumer would love to just learn a little bit about how you invest and some of the trends that you're focused on. Yeah, we are very thesis oriented and thesis around both stage and structure and areas that we're focused on. So I think it's important to differentiate between consumer, which is a massive, massive, massive area. And I would put Uber is consumer, Airbnb is consumer. That is not us. We are consumer brands. About 10% of our fund is allocated to consumer tech, but that tech, we won't lead those rounds. We'd love to participate with strong leads and we just finished two of those deals, but it still is focused on, it enables the brand to operate better, faster, quicker, more efficiently, use data better, or it enables the consumer to have a better experience with the brand. So it's still very much brand centric, but we are really focused on consumer brands and in in particular areas, health and wellness, beauty, personal care, apparel and accessories. They're probably the primary ones. Home and food and beverage and pet are ones that we'll definitely look at and are interested in as well. I just have less operating experience in that. So I, I tend to focus more on what I really, really know well. But the general theme is these These are areas that we want to invest behind companies that are thinking about better for you, better for the world. So, you know, they're improving their consumers' lives, bringing joy, making it easier, bringing greater value. The consumers of these brands are interacting with them every day and, and, and really are just improving the quality of their lives. That's very important. The other thing I'd say, and so, you know, from, from the extent uh, of values, we are very values driven. Our brands are not just selling widgets. They're thoughtful about the ingredients that they're using. They're thoughtful about the impact that their existence has on the broader world. And that could be around ethical production or supply chain transparency or clean ingredients or better for you. Some aspect of that, you know, I think we really are focused on the ethical component behind investing and and investing with responsibility. There is a lot of responsibility that comes with having capital to allocate. And if we're going to do that, we really want to invest behind the best founders. And I don't think these are orthogonal concepts. I don't think that, you know, investing in a company that is doing well for its consumer, doing good for the earth and making a lot of money, these are not orthogonal. In fact, I think in in consumer, these are actually all correlated. So I think all of that gets us excited. No, absolutely. It gets me very excited too, in terms of companies that really actually do care about values. It almost seems like today, those are table stakes in a lot of ways for companies. 
companies. I hope so. I like I, I hope so. I've seen it going towards this in the last five or six years. I think this year, you know, again, I'm a kind of a consummate optimist. I think this year accelerated that where we all kind of took stock a little bit and thought about what's really important and what brands do we want to support? Where do we want to put our dollars? I think in general, we're a lot more thoughtful about that. But I don't know, maybe that could just be me being hopeful, but I think so. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm hopeful as well. Absolutely. You know, I'd love to also talk a little bit about COVID too. We've seen now large corporations kind of wake up uh, that e-commerce is here and, and actually exists during COVID. Do you think, you know, even though e-commerce penetration has really increased substantially, that it's more competitive than it was pre-COVID? Yes, I do. I definitely do. The barriers to enter to create a digital brand are lower than I've ever seen before. You can throw up a Shopify store overnight. You can have a social media account within, you know, a minute and and you have a digital brand. So, yes, I mean, think back to when I was at eToys, none of this existed. Everything was homegrown. Everything. We spent millions of dollars, you know, creating an infrastructure that today costs, I don't know, 100 bucks a month or something. You know, I mean, it's an extraordinary evolution. So, yes, I think it's more competitive. I think it's much noisier, much, much, much noisier in some some ways, I think it's better for the consumer. I'm always pro-consumer. I think that because the consumer is spending their hard-earned dollars, they should get everything and anything that they want as close to perfect every time. I think the power should reside with the consumer. I really do. And so with the proliferation of, of these brands, we now have an infrastructure where you can have a successful, profitable, smaller brand exist in this world and cater and service smaller communities really, really, really well and perfectly. And so we can have, you know, we've seen a proliferation. We can have many, many of these. That's interesting to me. As an investor, we have to think about, okay, structurally, what does that mean to us? And again, I would revert to, okay, don't build this so that you have to have a billion dollar exit. Build this and scale this with integrity so that if you have a $200 million exit, everybody's super happy, including your investors. That's how we should be thinking about it. But yeah, I'd say it's more competitive. It's very noisy out there. I think, you know, understanding your positioning, understanding your differentiation. What problem are you really solving? Are you really solving a problem where you're just creating a brand because it's kind of cool to do and you know it's it's an extension of your hobby? I think you have to really be judicious. Founders today have to be super judicious about what is it that's extraordinary that they're bringing to the table. That's how I think you start to rise above. Yeah, I love that. I love how you started too, always on the side of the consumer and that with all these brands, what does that mean? That means freedom of choice for the consumer. You know, almost it's seems like endless choice due to, you know, how affordable or cheap it is and also how it doesn't take that much time to start a Shopify store. And I think that you also alluded to it too in, you know, how do you look past the noise of what brands could actually get get past that noise and actually be long-term sustainable and grow. It seems like if they're solving, they're obviously solving like a real problem and they're actually concerning a real problem that's in the consumer that isn't theirs. It makes a lot of sense. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Oh, the lack of diversity, hands down. Hands down. I think it's a huge problem on the fund manager and check writer side. Again, when you have such an extraordinarily homogenous group that is allocating 98% of the capital, 
you have problems. You are creating a world that is not reflective of everybody. And even outside of the ethical component of that, which I, which I think is really significant, you're foregoing huge opportunities to make a lot of money. You just are, you know, as, as investors, because you're not, and then again, I look through things very much on the consumer side. So, you know, when I see huge groups of people that are not being represented, where brands are not being created to represent. And this can cut a number of ways. This can cut in age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, where you're from, geography. These can be cut many, many different ways. You know, when you don't have women and people of color and fund managers or investors that come from different backgrounds, you are eliminating just a significant chunk of opportunity. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And the research, of course, is in about how diverse teams lead to actually much stronger returns. And also, if you have diverse uh, investors, they're going to see opportunities that wouldn't normally see. One of the founders that I have coming up here on the show that's going to be played before yours, Beatrice, who's the founder of Suma Wealth. And she's targeting like the Latin consumer in the US, which is an enormous, enormous opportunity, huge. And, you know, if you're a white male, you might not even, you know, know about this opportunity, right? In terms of as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, as when I was an operator and raising capital, I happened to be at businesses where we didn't have really any issues raising capital, but that's very unique. That's definitely unique. You know, I very much remember walking into Sand Hill Road offices and I was the only woman and, and, you know, and these were very female oriented companies. And it was in only in one meeting was there one woman and these and these were usually large partner meetings where there were 20 people plus and she was a marketing person that's a problem like that's a problem that, that you know even back then when when we were pitching the vcs would say oh well i'll ask my assistant or i'll ask my wife and i'm like that's an issue. Not that you have to be the customer. You don't have to be the customer. I invest in businesses, but I'm an investor in Manscaped. I can promise you I'm not the customer of Manscaped. You know, you have to bring a different perspective. You have to, to some extent, understand the value proposition outside of the product that the brand is is selling. And when you have mostly, you know, vast majority of white males making these decisions, it's a suboptimal decision. Totally agree. I absolutely agree. So what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Oh my goodness. Oh, I've received a lot of great advice. I would say courage with values is very, very important in business. I think you have to be courageous. I think you have to have an appetite for risk, but I think that courage and risk needs to happen on the basis of a set of values. I love that. I love that. And my final question, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Oh, gosh. You know, what's funny is that I don't know if I would distinguish between the two. So much of what I do professionally is very personal. You know, as, as an investor in, in kind of very values-driven brands, which are very emotional, there is, you know, when I go through an investment process, it's an art and a science. And I'm not just looking at metrics. I'm not just looking at data or how to think about the business. I'm looking at how is this brand going to improve people's lives? How is it going to add value? You know, a big thesis that I want to invest behind this year is democratizing access to better-for-you brands that have in the past been 
really prohibitively priced and therefore not really available. I think that that's a next step and it could be in better for you food, healthier food, clean, non-toxic skincare, for example. These are great categories, but up until, you know, I think fairly recently, there hasn't been enough competition on the supply side to be able to really bring the pricing down. And so all of this great for you stuff has not been available. So that's a professional aspect of what I'm doing, but it's also deeply personal. So that's a long-winded to say, a long-winded way to say it's hard for me to kind of distinguish between the two. I enjoy books about self-discovery. For example, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning was a very profound book for me. And I think that there are aspects of, you know, when we invest, we invest mostly behind people and understanding people and what motivates people. And again, when it comes back to values, that I would say is a core thesis. It's, it's very important to me. And so that book, I probably read once every few years. The, the Alchemist is another book that I actually really like. I mean, these are probably off the wall books. They're not the more traditional ones, but, but they've been deeply meaningful to me over a long period of time. No, that's great. That's super helpful. I think Rishi Garg also mentioned Man's Search for Meeting. I think we had another investor that mentioned The Alchemist as well. But no, this is great. This is great. Really excited to add these to the book list online. This is great. What's one piece of advice that you have for early stage founders? Yeah, I would say be tenacious. You have to be tenacious. Almost everybody and everything around you is going to tell you you can't do it or will give you reasons why you shouldn't do it. While it's important to listen to people that you trust and have respect for, you have to believe in yourself. And if your desire to start this company is just is so strong and keeps you up at night and you can't let go of it, I would listen to that. I would listen to that. I would also make sure that you have, you know, you do the diligence and, and you have the data to back it up and, and you want to build something that's outside of just your realm because I've also seen founders get really caught up in just their experience and, and that can also be problematic. But it's hard. It's really unbelievably hard. And you're going to have people that you respect and from everything that you can see about them are incredibly successful and they're going to tell you why you shouldn't do it or why it will never work. And you can hear them, but if you believe in yourself, you you have to keep going and you have to be tenacious. The best founders that I've seen, and we tend to glorify the whole startup journey, there's nothing easy or pleasant or necessarily all the time fun about it. It is kind of a bloodbath and it's really, really hard. And know what you're getting into and build up the mental skills and the mental capability and belief in yourself to keep going because tenacity is extraordinarily important. I really appreciate that. I think that's a great, great piece of advice. Be tenacious and listen to yourself when really the only thing you can think about or obsess over is that idea. At the same time, you also do the research as well. So no, I love that. I love that. Deb. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. You are so welcome. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for asking me to join you today. I really, really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was so fantastic having Deb on the show. Deb, thanks so much for coming on. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. 